0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dennis Doda.
2: And I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. Vitamins and supplements are a big business. According to the National Institutes of Health, sales of dietary supplements in the United States are approximately $40 billion each year. But are these supplements really necessary and how do you know what to take? On today's program, we'll talk vitamin recommendations, dietary supplements, and the Mayo Clinic
1: diet with a Mayo Clinic nutrition expert. I love how Dr. Kakar says vitamins. I might have to ask him about that. Also on today's program, February is American Heart Month, we will discuss risk factors for women and heart attack.
2: And a new cardiovascular genetic test that can detect hereditary cholesterol condition.
1: All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this.
2: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakao.
1: And I'm Dennis Dota. Vitamin D, you know, it's found in a lot of foods, including fish, eggs, fortified milk, cod liver oil. The sun, though, also adds to the body's daily production of vitamin D. And as little as 10 minutes of exposure a day is thought to help prevent deficiency. Well, what's its major
2: role? Well, the major role of vitamin D is to maintain normal blood levels of calcium and phosphorus vitamin D helps the body absorb calcium which forms and maintains strong bones vitamin D may also protect against osteoporosis high blood pressure cancer and
1: other diseases so we talked about how the sun can help you keep your vitamin D going but for those of us living in the northern hemisphere during these gray winter days we kind of have to ask the big question what's the best way to make sure we're getting enough vitamin D
2: Here to talk about vitamin D recommendations, along with other nutritional advice, is Mayo Clinic specialist in internal and preventative medicine, Dr. Donald Hensrud. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Hensrud. Happy to be here. Thank you. What's actually changed regarding vitamin D recommendations? Uh, Have they been amended?
3: They've changed over the years, and it's interesting. There are a couple sets of recommendations out there. The most solid recommendations are from the Institute of Medicine and form the RDA, or Recommended Dietary Allowance. And those are relatively modest 400 units a day for children, 600 for young adults, 800 units a day for older adults. The problem is, if you look at levels among the population, about 20 to 50% of people in various studies have low vitamin D values, depending on how you define low.
1: That's a lot.
3: It is a lot. The recommendations, the RDA, was set just for bone health using a very, uh, very conservative interpretation of the data. As you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of other evidence that's less solid for cancer prevention, for uh, other uh, diseases such as even heart disease, insulin sensitivity, type 1 diabetes. So uh, the Endocrine Society actually recommends 1,500 to 2,000 units a day of vitamin D. Wow. Which almost requires supplementation. So there's a wide variability. I recommend people should at least get the RDA, and this is one of the few supplements that I have a low threshold for recommending supplementation on.
2: So when you mention the recommended daily uh, amount and you mentioned the units, what does that physically mean when somebody's thinking, is this, am I eating enough vitamin D? Yeah,
3: there are. F- food sources, but they're not very good sources, which is why we add vitamin D to to milk. Yes. It's fortified, but overall, our diet doesn't supply a lot. You mentioned in the north, uh, we have lower vitamin D values. There's less sun. Uh, People who have dark skin, for example, also absorb less uh, sunlight, less vitamin D from the sun. People who are heavy absorb less vitamin D. So there are multiple things that can put people at risk for lower vitamin D values.
1: The recommendations you gave us, presumably, are for adults. Is it different for infants and children?
3: Yeah, children's a little bit lower, 400 units a day. Adults, a little bit more. But again, there's a big difference between uh, the Endocrine Society
2: Guidelines, other recommendations, and the RDA. So... Being a, a new parent myself, the last thing I want my children to get is vitamin D deficiency. Is there, you talked about fortified milk. Is there a certain amount of milk, for example, a young child should be drinking on a daily basis? Oh,
3: I, You know, just enough. Uh, I don't think you have to measure it or anything, but just make sure that they have an adequate supply around, and, and they should do okay.
1: And you mentioned supplementation. So how do we go about getting our daily allowance?
3: Yeah, if you really want to be scientific about it, you can measure your vitamin D value, but that, that costs anywhere from 250 to $300 dollars. And vitamin D3 is very cheap. There's also a larger safety factor than we used to think. So a 1,000 units a day of vitamin D3 is safe for uh, almost
2: anyone and, and is a reasonable amount to supplement. And you mentioned sun exposure. So, for example, in the winter, all of us are cocooned away. But in the summer... We're all out in our shorts. Does that tend to make up for the uh, deficiency that we have in the winter? or
3: Higher values of vitamin D in the blood are reported in the summertime, so yes. Now, that's a balancing act, as we all know, because increased time in the sun leads to an increased risk of skin cancer. Yes. So what, uh, if you listen to some of our colleagues in dermatology, you never go out in the sun. Uh, that's probably good advice, but I tell my patients, if you are going to be out in the sun long enough to get pink or burned, then it's time to put sunblock on or sunscreen.
1: What about the other vitamins that um, we may commonly have deficiencies for?
3: In terms of vitamins and minerals, iron is a strong one for young women, menstruating women, and for older people, vitamin B12. 10 to 15% of people over the age of 65 have very early vitamin B12 deficiency. Hmm. And so that's another nutrient that, especially in the elderly, isn't a
2: bad idea to supplement. Why is that important, vitamin B12? What's it needed for?
3: Vitamin B12 is is used in red blood cell production. You can become anemic with vitamin B12. More importantly, it's involved in nerve conduction. I see. Untreated vitamin B12 can lead to uh, nerve damage that's irreversible. Hmm. Uh, it's also been reported very early vitamin B12 can lead to depression, memory problems uh, in the elderly. So that's one, uh, another one, uh, one of the few that I have a low threshold for recommending supplementation
1: on. B12, very good. You know, if we wander down the aisle at the grocery store or the drugstore, the aisles are just packed with vitamins, and some are very affordable, some are quite expensive. How do we go about getting the right ones? Because it sounds like maybe regulation for the supplement industry isn't quite as stringent as approving a drug through the FDA. It
3: certainly isn't as good as pharmaceutical drugs, but they're, they're, they've uh, become better over the years. There's good manufacturing practices. Most people, but not all supplement companies, follow that. Uh, with supplements, the bottom line is, though, you can never be 100% sure that what they say on the label is actually in the pill. And in terms of supplements, as I've, we've talked about a couple important ones. For general supplementation, vitamin D, vitamin B12, maybe a little bit of calcium, that uh, isn't a bad idea, and possibly fish oils, although the data aren't as strong. But other than that, unless you have documented deficiency, I'm not a big fan of uh, widespread supplementation.
2: So you mentioned the number of vitamins one should take. So would a daily multivitamin be sufficient? Yeah, good question. Or should we be buying separate B12
3: so it's interesting because if you look at the data on multivitamins, it's not that strong. In fact, there's a study, a population study out of Iowa that showed that people who took different supplements actually had increased mortality, including multivitamins. So uh, wow. I, I'm not a big fan of <laughs> multivitamins, and I think D and B12, if people are in the right category, should take those individually.
1: Are those uh, the vitamins that you take personally?
3: Uh, don't take B12 yet, but I probably will start pretty soon <laughs>
2: as I get up in age. Um, do take vitamin D. Now, you mentioned calcium. Is that, is that a vitamin or is that a mineral? It's, and what's the difference is? It's a mineral. And okay. that,
3: uh, vitamins or nutrients are things that are found that we can't make in our body. I see. We can't make minerals either. It's just a different uh, form of something. And uh, calcium isn't a bad one because we're kind of borderline on our calcium intake too. Both D and, and calcium are important for good bone health.
2: We're talking about vitamin D and other vitamin supplements with Dr. Donald Hebsbrood.
1: Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to switch gears a bit and discuss the second edition of the Mayo Clinic Diet Book and its two phases, lose it and live it.
2: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
4: Bobby pins, car keys, paper clips, cotton swabs, all things that should not be in your ears. Yes, even cotton swabs. In fact, the American Academy of Otolaryngology says don't put anything smaller than your elbow in your ears. It feels good and you see some wax on whatever you put in your ear, so you feel like you got it out. But Mayo Clinic otolaryngologist Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan says putting this or anything else in your ear canal does more harm than good. You're pushing most of the wax in deeper. Dr. Balakrishnan says most people's ears do a good job of self-cleaning, so only the outside of the ear needs attention.
3: It's totally fine to use a Q-tip to clean the outside of the ear but don't put anything into the ear hole.
4: If your ears become plugged or your hearing is muffled or if you have discomfort or prolonged itching, see a doctor.
3: There are some people who do have problems with very dry wax or very sticky wax that doesn't work its way out, and then it's appropriate to see a
1: physician or health care provider to get that cleaned out, but don't try to do it yourself.
4: For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Jeff Olson.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm
2: Dennis Dota. And I'm Dr. Sanj Kaka. We're back talking nutrition with internal and preventative medicine specialist, Dr. Donald Hensrud. We've talked about vitamins and supplements in our first segment. Now let's turn our attention to the Mayo Clinic diet.
1: And Dr. Hensrud, I know you're well-versed in this, so break it down for us a little bit. What does the Mayo Clinic diet entail?
3: Well, The Mayo Clinic diet is more than a diet, but we use that term because that's how people search for information on weight management using the term diet, but it's a lifestyle change program. We divide it up into two phases, the lose-it phase and the live-it phase. People want to lose weight. They want to lose weight quickly. So we took all of the things we could find in the medical literature that have some evidence supporting uh, decreased weight, and we throw the kitchen sink at people for two weeks. We ask them to add five habits, break five habits, and there are five bonus habits that we strongly encourage them to adopt. In our pilot program, when people did this for two weeks, they lost an average of eight pounds, and most people lost six to ten pounds. So In two weeks? It, in two weeks. But it's safe because all the habits are safe and effective.
2: So can you give us some examples of, for example, uh, some uh, habits that we should be taking?
3: Some of them are very simple. Eat breakfast, for example. That's been associated with better weight management. Eat more fruits and vegetables. Studies have shown that the more fruits and vegetables that people ate, the less that they weigh because they're not eating something else that's higher in calories. Some of the more difficult ones, the most difficult one for people was no eating while watching TV, and you can only watch as much TV as the amount of time you spend exercising.
1: Oh.
3: (laughs) We're not telling (laughs) people not to to watch TV, but be active if you're going to. The other difficult one, was no sugar except what's in fruit. And you realize how much sugar are in different uh, foods that we eat. For example, there's 17 teaspoons of sugar in one 20-ounce soda.
1: So we have to read labels, essentially, because we're not talking about sugar I sprinkle on my cereal or in the coffee.
3: Well, we are. Any added sugar. So all of
1: it. All of it.
3: Okay. But it's only for two weeks. And what people said was, I didn't think I could do it, but it wasn't that bad, because I knew it was only for two weeks, and they felt empowered. They saw the weight come off, and they felt good going into the next phase of the diet, the live-it phase. And that's when we take those habits and turn it into a long-term lifestyle change.
2: So, so I want to challenge you because um, <laughs> my wife and my mother are probably listening to this and saying, I told you so. So, for example, uh, as uh, physicians, we're busy. We leave home early and we don't have breakfast and we just power on through the day. And then we relatively have a balanced diet at the end of the day. And to me, it makes sense because you're not putting the calories in your body and so you burn it during the day and then you just eat a little bit at nighttime. But what you're saying is that's totally wrong. (laughs) It
3: it makes intuitive sense what you're saying, but what happens in studies is that they find that when people don't eat breakfast, they tend to make up for it and more later in the day. They don't even realize it. They may be more hungry. The other thing is if you think about it from a nutritional standpoint for your body, you're fasting overnight, perhaps 12 hours, and the body does good to get a little uh, gas, a little uh, nutrition in it to, to feed the fire, so to speak, the engines when it revs up.
1: So... Does that mean metabolism comes into play? We, we often hear about you can't starve yourself because then your body goes into a survival mode.
3: That, that, that's true. And I've seen patients who are eating one meal a day trying to lose weight, and their metabolic rate actually goes down ah. when we measure it. The okay. body's trying to conserve its energy. So the, the, what we encourage people to do, if you're hungry, eat. Just try and eat the right types of foods.
2: So, for example, you're a a very fit and active gentleman. What what do you have for breakfast every morning?
3: Well, before I say that, it's not what I do. It's what the data (laughs) shows. But I try and practice what I preach. I'll have a whole grain cereal for breakfast. My lunch, believe it or not, I usually have about three pieces of fruit, maybe a a whole grain toast with peanut butter. Uh, Today I had some leftover red rice. In the evening, I try and have a big salad. Uh, Do you remember Jethro Bodine on the Beverly Hillbillies? Sure. I've got a salad. Bowl that he would be proud of. It's a, <laughs> it's a huge salad uh, we usually have. About
1: the size of a bird bath. <laughs> yeah, that's
3: right. <laughs> uh, perhaps some fish, uh, whole grain baguette, uh, and some other vegetables, something like that.
2: And so, just to dispel, uh, dispel some dogma, um, should you eat uh, within an hour of when you're going to bed, for example? Oh, the
3: literally. main. Issue is for people who have heartburn or gastroesophageal reflux. They shouldn't eat within about three hours of going to bed because they'll get heartburn when they wake up. For everybody else, a calorie is a calorie is a calorie no matter when you eat it. Some very minor differences, but it matters. What happens at night, if people eat at night, usually they're less inhibited, so they eat more, and the types of foods they eat may be more high calorie. But uh, it's more important to eat what what you eat rather than when.
1: And even following this eat when you're hungry, kind of a mantra, in small meals throughout the day. Should we be looking at our total daily calorie intake?
3: Yes, you're, you're absolutely, it gets down to calories in versus calories out. The way the Mayo Clinic diet works with regard to weight management is by emphasizing low-energy-dense or low-calorie-dense foods, such as vegetables and fruits, you can get in a volume to make you satisfied, but not a lot of calories. And if you think about it, it isn't calories that fill us up. It's the volume or weight of food. There's the same amount of calories in one and a third sticks of butter as there is in 10 or 11 heads of lettuce or 35 cups of green beans. So it shows when you're eating foods that are very energy-dense, like butter, fats, sugar, uh, as opposed to fruits, vegetables, whole grains, things like that, you can get in a lot more calories and not even realize it.
2: So, Dr. Hensrud, I wanted to get your expertise in the debate, carbs or no carbs. Uh, what are your thought processes on that?
3: You know, it's interesting. Years ago, everything was uh, low-fat, and you could all eat all the pasta you wanted. Then we turned that on its head, and everything was high-fat, low-carb. And now gluten, a protein, is the bad guy. So these things cycle. The way we emphasize what we recommend are healthy carbs and healthy fats. So if you're eating a lot of whole-grain products, brown rice, oatmeal, whole wheat bread, those are good carbs. They've got a lot of nutrients, fiber in them. Same thing with fats. You don't have to go very low fat. In the Mediterranean, it's a higher fat diet with more olive oil. Uh, nuts are very healthy. They've been associated with a reduced risk of cancer, heart disease, and overall mortality. And so eating healthy carbs and healthy fats is the way to go.
1: So most of uh, the, the mile markers in following the Mayo Clinic diet are very well explained in the book. Um, but dieting, just the idea of dieting, sort of turns people off. We think it's deprivation, and, and I know looking in the book, there are a lot of recipe suggestions in there.
3: Yeah. The most important thing is how people approach this. And you're right. Most people approach it as something that's negative, restrictive, and deprivation. Therefore, it's going to be temporary. Well,
2: it is. You're telling me I can't eat my chocolate. (laughs) Of course
3: it is. (laughs) (laughs) To have a piece of dark chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) But you can still, there's a lot of great food out there. We don't restrict any food. We watch the portion size of higher energy-dense foods. All the vegetables and fruits people want to eat. There's a lot of good food out there, and it doesn't have to be a life of
1: deprivation.
3: Many people say when I weighed less, I felt better. And they need to listen to that while they're enjoying good food.
1: And I I know this steps off topic just a little bit, but it's still toward the same goal. Is there any formula for exercise that should accompany the diet recommendations that we would receive?
3: Some of the uh, habits that we change, one is move 30 minutes a day. You don't have to train for the Olympics or a marathon to get the benefits of physical activity. Any activity is good activity. And so we encourage people and we show them in the book
2: different ways of getting activity. Now There are many uh, devices or apps that one can use to track fitness and also caloric intake. Are you a fan of those uh, devices?
3: There, yes, as long as they're used as a tool. Okay. Because what happens lots of times, people use only the device, they get used to the device, it motivates them for a couple months, and then it extinguishes and they stop using it. But if it's a way to track the underlying program that they're on and to keep them on track, great.
1: Wonderful job. Gosh, so many fabulous recommendations in there. Dr. Hensrud, thanks very much for joining us today and bringing us up to date on the Mayo Clinic diet. Thank you. We want to mention that Dr. Hensrud is an internal and preventive medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Thank you.
2: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll talk women and heart disease with a Mayo Clinic expert and a new genetic test is being offered at Mayo Clinic to detect familial hypercholesterolemia. Coming up... The latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Smoking is bad for you. So is secondhand smoke, which is smoke you inhale from someone else's cigarette. And now there's thirdhand smoke to worry about, especially for children.
1: And I'll say, do you smoke in the house with, oh, doctor, I will never smoke in the house with the grandkids. I will go outside in 40-degree blow weather before I would smoke with the grandkids. I said, that's wonderful. When you come back in and they sit on your lap, do they say, Grandma, you smell like smoke? She says, yes. I said, well, if they smell it, they inhale it. If they inhale it, they absorb it.
0: Dr. Stephen Kopetsky says there are about 3,000 chemicals in cigarette smoke, and some you have to inhale. But smoke also produces toxic residue on surfaces, and if you touch it, your body can absorb it. More research needs to be done on the effects of third-hand smoke, but...
1: Everyone's feeling is that if they get those carcinogens in their body, over time that's going to cause some problems.
0: Cancer and damage to blood vessels, which increases your risk of heart attack and stroke. The burning pain of shingles makes you feel like your skin is on fire. It's caused by the same virus that causes chickenpox. Dr. Vandana Bidet says after you've had the chickenpox, the virus can live in your nervous system for years. No one's sure why it reappears, but the thought is, if your immune system weakens because of illness or the aging process, the virus can reactivate and travel along your nerves to your skin, causing severe pain and blisters. The pain can happen days before the rash erupts. There's no cure, but medication may lessen symptoms and shorten suffering. A vaccine recommended for people age 60 and over can help prevent shingles. We know that it will significantly decrease um, the risk of getting shingles in these in these people and it will also decrease the risk of something called post neuralgia, which is this very painful kind of uh, phantom pain almost that's in the region where shingles was but is after it's already healed. And in other news, dry sinuses, bloody noses and cracked lips. Humidifiers can help soothe these familiar problems caused by dry indoor air. Humidifiers can also help ease symptoms of a cold or another respiratory condition. But be cautious. Although useful, humidifiers can actually make you sick if they aren't maintained properly or if humidity levels stay too high. So if you use humidifiers, be sure to monitor humidity levels and keep your humidifier clean. Dirty humidifiers can breed mold or bacteria. And if you have allergies or asthma, talk to your doctor before using a humidifier. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio.
2: I'm Dennis Dota. And I'm Dr. Sanj Kaka. Last year, the actress Carrie Fisher passed away at the age of 60, just days after suffering a heart attack. Stories like hers are a stark reminder that heart disease is still the number one killer of men and women in the United States. Most people would recognize the stereotypical Hollywood heart attack signs, for example, clutching the chest, pain radiating down the arm, and nausea and vomiting. But oftentimes, women who are suffering a heart attack have symptoms that may seem more ambiguous.
1: The best way for women to prevent heart attack is to know and manage their own personal risk factors, naturally. And here to discuss heart attack risk factors for women is Dr. Rekha Mancad, who is the director of the Cardio Rheumatology Clinic at Mayo Clinic.
2: Welcome back to the program, Dr. Mankad. Thank you very much. So Hollywood heart attack, that's an interesting way of phrasing a very serious condition. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what differentiates that between men and women?
5: So I think the term Hollywood heart attack is sort of this visual. You get a visual where you see usually a man putting his hand over the left side of his chest and sort of clutching it, looking pale, maybe being sweaty. And that's sort of the classic look that had always been described to heart attacks. But we know that women don't always present exactly like that. Now, chest pain is still a very common presenting symptom for a heart attack in a woman, but it's not the predominant or only symptom. Usually women's chest pain is not as severe as men's chest pain, mm-hmm. and they can have more uh, consistent uh, uh, symptoms, such as uh, shortness of breath, and just being winded, uh, feeling uneasy, having some nausea. Their pain can be not just in the chest, but in the back, or in the shoulders or the neck. So although there is chest pain, it's not the only predominant symptom typically in women.
1: Do we understand why women may present with these different types of symptoms?
5: I don't think we really know why. Um, We know that heart attacks between men and women, when we look at them uh, upon presentation and look at their heart arteries, it is different. Women tend to have a more small vessel disease. They may not have as tight uh, blockages as men. But Beyond that, we don't really know. Women's vessels sometimes are smaller. And actually, the vessel wall, the way the artery works, usually is stiffer in women. Mm. So whether that's part of it, we don't fully know. Okay.
2: Is there a particular age group that women are more at risk? Is it after, for example, menopause later on in life? or What's the cause there?
5: Well, certainly uh, after menopause, the uh, incidence goes up dramatically. Okay. But all women are at risk. And so I think that's what we have to remember is that even women before menopause need to understand their own personal risk. And why does that happen after menopause? Well, estrogen is very protective for women. So it seems that estrogen does a lot of really good things for the arteries. It also, uh, when you have estrogen on board, typically the cholesterol numbers look better unless you have the genetic makeup to have bad cholesterol. After menopause, losing that estrogen, a lot of those protective benefits go away.
1: You know, it's unfortunately all too common for women to assume that those odd pains aren't a heart attack and uh, expect that that's something that more frequently happens to men. Is that a reason that women seem to delay in seeking treatment when they're actually in the throes of a heart attack?
5: Yeah, I think that's uh, a really good point. I think women tend to think it can't be my heart, so that's the first thing. They are willing, and I think everybody in general, but willing to think that it's something else, something less minor. Um, And yes, because the symptoms may not be so severe and they're a bit more vague, They ignore them. You know, somebody will try something for their stomach or they'll just go and rest and wait it out a little longer rather than getting help immediately.
2: So, Dr. Mankad, is this, you know, we're raising awareness amongst our female uh, audience out there. But what about practicing uh, doctors? Are they aware of this? I mean, when I went to medical school, it was the classic central chest pain going down the arm. Are our emergency room doctors and other treating practitioners aware of this?
5: yeah, I think people are getting more and more aware of this. you know uh, over a decade ago with the whole go red movement and the red dress campaign, this all came to light, and the reason that was ha- that happened was because we saw that more women were dying of heart disease than men, and that 's still a fact that people hmm. aren 't all aware of, but until the last actually study just uh, reported a year ago, women were actually dying more often than men from heart disease. And so getting that information out was very important, and that's what all the the red dress movement really brought about, and that educated uh, not only uh, physicians but the consumer, the patient, so that they knew to be more insistent if they felt that something wasn't going well. So we've done a good job, but there's still more to do, and I think that people can say, yes, heart disease is the number one killer of women, but that personal patient has to understand that it's their own risk. That saying it, oh, yes, women die of heart disease, they have to recognize that it could be them and to not just say the words but to make sure they act on any signs or symptoms or risk factors.
1: What are some of the risk factors that make a woman more likely to suffer a heart attack?
5: Well, again, it's the same risk factors that men have. So um, when we talk about risk factors, we're talking about things like elevated blood pressure, uh, high cholesterol, being overweight, not exercising, not eating healthy, uh, having diabetes, and smoking. So those are all the same risk factors for both men and women. However, we don't know if all of those play the same role in a woman compared to a man. Some of them seem to be a bigger risk for a woman. A woman who smokes is at bigger risk than a man who smokes. A woman with diabetes seems to be at more risk. But then there's also some very specific female risk factors that we have to delve into and those are things that happen during pregnancy. If you have high blood pressure during pregnancy or something called preeclampsia or eclampsia, you're at increased risk later in your life of having uh, heart disease. So I think we have to look at uh, sort of the woman's entire a medical history to tease out some of these uh, individual risk factors.
2: This is just fascinating. I mean, who would have thought having preeclampsia would increase your risk of heart disease and heart attack later on? Are there any tips to prevent this from happening? You know, I'm sure a lot of our uh, audience are sitting out there thinking, hmm, I I had preeclampsia. What should I be doing now?
5: Well, I think one of the keys is always to make sure that your provider hears your whole whole medical history and can counsel you on your own individual risk. We know that the risk scores systems that are out there may be suboptimal in women and not capture a a woman's risk as well as it does a man. But just to discuss individual risk is very important. And then it's always important to be heart healthy. It's never too late. Even if you've had an event, it's always important to do those things that make your heart healthy long term and control the risk factors that are controllable. You mentioned risk scores. What are risk scores? So there's uh, scoring systems that are out there that uh, cardiologists use fairly regularly. There's the Framingham uh, score. There's also a 10 year atherosclerotic risk score that we can perform, and those are online, and we put in patient's age, their gender, their cholesterol numbers, their blood pressure, whether they smoke, and it comes up with a a risk of an event in 10 years or 30 years, and you can use that to counsel a patient on where they fall, and that also helps guide whether you should be initiating medications such as cholesterol-lowering medications to that patient.
1: Do you think general practitioners now are uh, giving more respect to the likelihood that women? and have to head off this threat of cardiovascular events?
5: I think they are doing better. I think uh, general practitioners, internal medicine are all uh, well-versed in this. But I think, like with everything, it's, it's time. You have to be able to have the time to do all of this counseling, which I think is difficult for everyone.
2: So in this day and age where we're all moving 150 miles an hour, we were like that quick fix. Mm-hmm. So, for example, taking a baby aspirin, 81 milligrams a day, What are your thoughts about that? Is that a good thing to be doing?
5: Well, I think that's a discussion you have to have with your provider. So we used to think that taking an aspirin for everyone, you know, in adulthood was great, that it was going to be protective. But really, we have to look at who really needs it. And doing it as primary prevention, meaning taking it to take it, may not be uh, necessary for everyone. And you want to really look at what your individual risk is of a cardiovascular event and see if the benefits of aspirin outweigh any of the risks.
2: We've been talking about heart attack risk factors with Mayo Clinic's Director of Cardio Rheumatology Clinic, Dr. Rekha Mankad. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Mankad. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Well, we're going to take a short break and when we we come back we will hear about a new genetic test that's being offered at mayo clinic you're listening to mayo clinic radio on the mayo clinic news network welcome back to mayo clinic radio i'm Dennis Doda. and i'm dr
2: sanj kakar high cholesterol is known to run in families and in some cases high cholesterol is linked to a genetic defect this is called familial hypercholesterolemia or fh fh is a genetic condition that could lead to a heart attack or sudden cardio
1: death at a young age Mayo Clinic is one of the first hospitals to offer a new genetic test that screens families with children as young as 8 for FH. So quite an opportunity to intercede earlier. The testing is done through the new CV Genomics Clinic that is a collaboration between Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine, uh, the Department of Cardiovascular Diseases, and the Department of Clinical Genomics.
2: Here to discuss genetic testing for FH is Mayo Clinic cardiologist, Dr. Iftikhar Kalu. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kalou.
6: Thank you, Dr. Kakar.
2: So um, it'd be nice if you could tell us a little bit more about what you mean by familial hypercholesterolemia. I know a lot of people know about high cholesterol in general. How is this different?
6: Well, it's a heritable disorder, so it does run in families, and it's due to a faulty gene. And if you have one copy of the gene, that you're likely to get the disease. If you have two you get a much more severe form of the disease. So it's important because it's one of the most important reasons that people get early onset heart attack or stroke. And it's uh, easily treatable yeah, and if screened, we can start treatment early and prevent these adverse
1: outcomes in these young people. Many people have high cholesterol, right. uh, but not necessarily all of them have FH. Can you? Tell us how common this is?
6: Well, high cholesterol, if you we did a study here in Olmsted County, and if you took the population, about five percent of them have high cholesterol, defined as a bad cholesterol greater than one ninety milligrams per DL. And of those, actually, only a small percent will have FH. Uh, I would say approximately five to seven percent. So the rest are due to many different reasons. One reason is they that they, they're also genetic but the genes are multiple genes that have small effects in contrast to FH where there's a one faulty gene that leads to abnormal cholesterol metabolism. So you
2: mentioned uh, earlier on uh, in younger patients, sudden cardiac death, people would think, for example, arrhythmias would be causing that. But what I'm hearing is that it could be familial hypercholesterolemia in these patients.
6: Indeed. Uh, One should remember that when, uh, when such tragedy occurs, It is actually quite commonly due to plaque and a heart attack. And in this case, instead of having the typical symptoms of chest pain and somehow getting that warning signal to go to the emergency room and get treated, unfortunately the heart attack triggers a very sudden abnormal rhythm and the patient dies. And so it can lead to um, sudden cardiac death
1: because of a heart attack. You mentioned the the family connection. Right. But... Are there others who should be tested? Who should uh, consider being screened for this?
6: Well, there's a lot of talk about where should we do cholesterol screening. So there's one uh, mandate that says we should screen everybody, every child. Um, and then there's another viewpoint which says let's screen those that have a family history of heart disease or family history of high cholesterol. But what everybody agrees on without controversy is that a term called cascade screening where if you have a patient that has FH, then all the family members of that patient should be screened for that mutation, that faulty gene. And this has been shown, for example, in Europe, particularly Netherlands, to be a particularly effective way of detecting these patients early and treating them and preventing bad outcomes. So cascade screening in all the relatives, particularly first-degree relatives. So if, if you identify a person with this condition, certainly that a person's children should be screened with a lipid level and also a genetic test. So
2: apart from the, the family history, are there any other warning signs that one should say, well, maybe I should be tested for this?
6: That's a great question. So many of these patients are asymptomatic. That's why it's important to screen them. So, you know, when you have very high levels at a young age, you're just walking around with these high levels, and you may not have any manifestation. You're just feeling perfectly fine. A uh, minority of individuals might develop bumps in, in the tendons related to their hands or their uh, ankle, uh, but the majority may not have any symptoms. So one clue is that if, was there anybody in your family mm-hmm. that had a heart attack at an early age?
1: That should be a clue. Looking at some of the research material the, that uh, you provided to us earlier, right. a frighteningly small percentage of people who have FH have actually been diagnosed with it. Uh, give us some of the statistics.
6: Right. So we estimate there's about a million and a half nearly patients with FH in this country. And uh, unfortunately, only about 10% of them are aware that they have FH and have been diagnosed. So you can imagine there's a million (laughs) people out there who might have this condition, which can cause quite catastrophic event. Sure. And yet they are not aware and uh, are not being treated. So there is a critical need for us in this country to increase people's awareness of this condition with a very simple screening methods and then the the beauty is that we can treat these patients with even generic drugs like statin medications that are relatively cheap and can be life saving so it's really imperative for us to you know be more aware of this condition
2: so if i if i'm sitting out there and i'm worried i have this family history and i and i want this test what is the test and and will my insurance company cover this or or how is that paid for
6: sure so it's actually a series of steps you see a physician Mm -hmm. and the physician can make a clinical diagnosis without necessarily needing everything but you know it's typically a clinic visit measurement of your cholesterol and um, but to confirm the diagnosis a genetic test is helpful and that genetic test is covered by the vast majority of insurance companies in the small minority that, uh, that are not covered, then there's a reasonable out-of-pocket fee, but more than 90% of the time, the payers will cover this test. And the way we do it is that we uh, seek the help of a genetic counselor who can explain to the patient what the test involves, what it means, what are the implications. I think
1: that's recommended for most genetic tests. And the way Mayo Clinic conducts this test right. seems to be a little bit different than the way it's done elsewhere. Well,
6: it's more the process, I would say. So what happens in other FH clinics is the focus on the patient to treat that patient. What we are focusing on here is, first of all, not only treat that patient, but also recognize that there's a family around that person that we gives us an opportunity to, to intervene and detect and treat early. So genetic testing is a great way of doing that.
2: And in terms of the treatment, you alluded to earlier medication. Can you make lifestyle changes, for example, improve your diet? Is, is that sufficient?
6: No, that most cases is not sufficient. It is necessary, but it is not sufficient. So we need to have medic- medication on top of lifestyle changes. We've been talking
2: about genetic testing to detect familial hypercholesterolemia with Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Iftikhar Kalou. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kalou.
1: Thank you very much. Fascinating and and very helpful suggestions this morning for uh, targeting whether or not you might be at risk for this condition. So we appreciate that, sir. Thank you all for joining us as well. That concludes our program for this week.
3: For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired
1: programs.
0: Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. You've been
2: listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shive and I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website radio.mayoclinic.org.